Well, it is good to be here this morning or this afternoon. Uh, I know sometimes it's hard in the afternoon when you've had a good meal. It's hard to stay awake. Uh, but I hope that the Lord will be with us this afternoon as we spend a few moments looking at His Word. And uh, last year, last summer, Brother Roger and Brother David and Sister Alice and a few more of us went out on a trip out to Texas. We visited an old replica of an old Baptist church. It was the first church, Baptist church, that met in Texas in the 1850s, I believe it was. They had a dirt floor and had a split log benches. We had a good time there, didn't we, Brother Roger? But I've thought since then that it would be good for us to have some churches with some of those split log benches that didn't have a back on them because I think that would solve the problem of people going to sleep in church. <laughs> you wouldn't go to sleep one time, probably, and you'd fall out of your seat. But of course, that's only in jest. And I know, I know how hard it is sometimes to stay awake. It's hard for me. Uh, I want to ask you to turn in your Bibles, if you would, this morning or this afternoon to the book of Acts, chapter 8. I'll say as you're turning there that it is really good to be here. I told Brother Leroy that when we first uh, made plans to come up here for a meeting, that I thought that uh, it was going to be Brother Jimmy, Sister Ruth, and Sister Mary, and Brother Leroy and myself, if that's who was going to be in the meeting, and I was looking forward to that. But but we got here, and, and we got a, a crowd. So Amen. I'm just thankful for everybody that's here. Amen. And I hope, especially, I know that when when I was a, a young man, a young, very young, this young, that uh, I felt like when I went to church, that uh, it was sometimes a chore for me personally to go and felt like that it, why am I there and and so forth. But I want you young people like I used to be, I want you to know how much I appreciate y'all being here. Amen. I really do. And I'm not the only one, but I do appreciate y'all being here. And you're not just here to fill up a seat. You're here like the rest of us to hear the Word of God preached. And I appreciate you being here. Uh, it's a real blessing to me to to see you here. In Acts chapter 8, and what I'm going to try to do this, this afternoon for a few moments, I'm going to look at the account that led up to the sermon that Philip preached to the Ethiopian eunuch. And then I want to spend a few minutes on the sermon that he preached. Jesus said in the first chapter of Acts, it's recorded in the first chapter of Acts, right before he ascended up into heaven, he said that the disciples or the apostles were to preach the gospel in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. 
And if you read in the book of Acts, that's exactly how the gospel was spread. It was preached first in Jerusalem. And then it was all throughout Judea. But then, when the gospel began to leave there and go to Samaria, it was as a result of persecution that broke out in Jerusalem. And as you read there in the beginning of the 8th chapter of Acts, that... uh, Great persecution, it tells in that first verse, had broken out against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And that was told about how that Stephen uh, had been buried, had been uh, martyred and buried. And verse 4 of that 8th chapter says, Therefore they were scattered abroad. But I like the last part of it, they went everywhere preaching the word. And they were scattered, and that's how God was spreading the gospel. He used persecution in Jerusalem to begin the spreading of the gospel. And they went into Samaria, and Philip went to Samaria, and he he began preaching there, and, and uh, it, it was what we would call a revival that happened in Samaria. And it says that, that uh, nearly everyone was giving heed to what Philip was preaching. There was a great work that was done. In the twelfth verse, it says that when they believed Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, and they were baptized, both men and women. I'll just say this. Uh, by the way, Brother Benjamin, I just thought of this because of the conversation that we had had. You know, there are a lot of people that tell us that baptism replaced circumcision. Well, that, there's, there's no scripture in the, in the Bible that says that. If it did, then this, would, this is just one verse that would put the quietus to that because they didn't, they didn't circumcise the women and the Jewish, but here they baptized both men and women. And that's important. And it doesn't say they baptized any babies either. It was men and women. And, and so... Uh, God really was a uh, work was really going on there, and and the Peter and John, they went to Jerusalem. They heard about this, and they went down there, and uh, uh, God just confirmed to them that that this the Lord was in this work. So there was a great work going on there. But another great lesson that I see in this is that God called Philip away from a revival to go preach to one man. Just one man. God has no problem getting the gospel to his people. And he sent Philip out into the desert. And it says that he got out there and he saw a man in a chariot. And the man was reading a scripture. And Philip went up to him. God had, uh, the Spirit, it says in the 29th verse of that chapter, the Spirit said to Philip, Go near and join thyself to this chariot. And Philip ran thither to him and heard him read the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah, which is Isaiah, and said, Understandest thou what thou readest? And he said, How can I, except some man should guide me? And he desired Philip that he should come up and sit with him. And the place 
where the Philip, where the scripture, the place of the scripture which he read was this: He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and like a lamb dumb before his shearer, so opened he not his mouth. In his humiliation, his judgment was taken away, and who shall declare his generation? For his life was take, is taken from the earth. Now we're going to turn in just a moment to read out of the book of Isaiah where this man was reading in the 53rd chapter of Isaiah. But I want to make one point, maybe a couple before I turn there. One thing that a lot of people miss when they read this account is in the 27th verse. I didn't actually read the 27th verse. But the last part of that 27th verse is that he had come to Jerusalem. He was returning from Jerusalem where he had gone to worship. This man was a an Ethiopian, but he was a Jewish proselyte. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship, and he was well acquainted with the Jews' religion. And later down in the verse, when he asked Philip, what doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip asked him, or he, he said to him, or he said, if you believe with all your heart, thou mayest. And I've heard people, I think, erroneously preach this and saying, we don't need to be too hard on people as far as them being believers. It's just real simple. If you just believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that's all it takes. You're a believer. I know that a few years ago, this question, if it had been asked out in public, would have been a lot different. But even today, I'm sure that we could go to the main street of, of, of this town or any town where there were a lot of people, maybe to a Walmart or something like that. And if we would just go around, ask people, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? Probably the majority of the people would say, sure, we believe that he's the Son of God. Does that mean that they're a true believer in Jesus Christ? What I think is missed in this text is that he was returning from Jerusalem. When he said that I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, he was saying that I am turning myself away from the Jews' religion, from that Old Testament economy, because I am acknowledging that this man called Jesus, this man that was, I'm sure he was not unaware of the fact that he had been crucified there in Jerusalem, that I am turning myself away from that old Jewish economy and I'm putting all my faith and all my hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, when we come to follow the Lord, it means more than just saying we believe on the Lord. We're also turning away from something. There's a repentance that is necessary. Repentance, not necessary in order to be saved, but repentance is evidence Repentance and faith is evidence that we are saved, that we are have been born again by the Spirit of God. But I want to look over in the 53rd chapter of Isaiah for a few moments. I don't, I'm not uh, uh, intending to spend a long time here this morning. Uh, I've already seen two or three people out there that <clears throat> have succumbed to the, the uh, effects of being kind of warm in here and, and having a full stomach, so I don't want to. I don't want anybody to fall out on the floor. But uh, 
In the 53rd chapter of Isaiah, this is the scripture that the eunuch was reading from. This is one of the most descriptive pictures. That this, if, if you want to see the Old Testament in the New, you find it, especially in the last, I won't read all of this, but if you read the, read the last, uh, about the last uh, three verses or four verses, last three verses of the 52nd chapter, and then all of the 53rd chapter, you really see the, the New Testament in the old. Matter of fact, some of the suffering, some of the physical sufferings that our Lord endured are more described in the Old Testament than they are in the New. It tells us in that 50, last part of that 52nd chapter that his face was marred, or his visage was marred more than any man. That he had been beaten physically up to a point that he was not all, almost not even recognizable as a human being. That was the physical things that Jesus suffered and what was necessary for our salvation. He suffered those things. But the physical suffering that Jesus endured was nothing compared to the real suffering that he endured. He endured the punishment for our sins. I can't imagine, I can't describe, I can't even tell you what that suffering was. But if you think of how bad the physical suffering would have been, the other, the, the, that motion, emotional, spiritual, whatever you want to call it, was so much worse than the physical suffering. And so Isaiah began here in the first part of this 53rd chapter, and he said, Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? Now, the, when the Bible talks about the arm of the Lord, it's talking about the strength. Who has seen, who has really seen the strength of the Lord? There, there used to be a, a, a saying, I guess it's probably still relevant, that, uh, you know, it's, it's time to roll up my sleeves and go to work. Because, and that is that, uh, that, that arm is revealed, the, the strength of the, of the Lord is revealed here. And Isaiah asked the question, who's believed the report that he gave of the Savior? And who has seen the strength of God? Who has seen it? And then he begins to scribe describe who this strength is well now you'd think when you talk about the strength of the Lord that you're going to see something mighty you know something that is appealing to the eye you're going to see something that is really really strong but what does he say he said he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground he hath no form nor commonness and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Probably, I'm, I'm quite sure that there's some of you here, I know Brother David, that are really expert gardeners. Uh, I've got some, some people of the, that are members of the church there where I am. They just, I mean, they've had some gardening, just, I mean, just beautiful. It used to be... <clears throat> 
And I guess still is probably, you know, in the in the springtime when people would plant the garden and you'd go over to visit somebody. Well, let me go out and look at your garden. I want to see how your garden's doing, you know. I lived most of my life in Arkansas. And <clears throat> Brother Leroy had been to the, the last house, home that I had there in Arkansas. And back, I had a, a little place there that had seven acres. Most of it was woods. And back in the the back part of that place, the first year, I think, after I'd lived there, the first spring, I told my wife, I said, I want to plant some potatoes. My dad used to plant a big crop of potatoes. And I had a, probably about a half acre back there, and I uh, I broke that up and, and got me some, uh, I think I got 50-pound of seed potatoes. And we got out there one Saturday morning. It was in March, and we got out there, and we planted those potatoes and covered them up. And I just was looking forward to having some homegrown potatoes. And we had a dry spring that year. I didn't even make back my seed. And I thought of that since then. From the aspect in reading this scripture, he was like a root out of a dry ground. A root out of a dry ground is not going to be very much of a plant. It's not, it's not going to be a much of any, any kind of, of, of whatever you're growing. A root out of a dry ground is not going to be anything that's very lovely. And this is what our Savior, this is how our Savior is described here. A root out of a dry ground. He had no form nor commonness. There's not any beauty physically about him. There's nothing that is particularly attractive. And there was nothing extraordinary physically about our Lord and Savior. You see people that wrongly have what they call pictures of Jesus. Well, first of all, we don't know what he looked we don't nobody can say what he looked like. Uh, second of all, we're not supposed to have images of things in heaven. But if it was an image, if we did have an image of Christ, it wouldn't be a real handsome like man. He's the kind. Well, Jesus was the kind of man when he walked on earth that he could walk through a crowd, and he did this many times, and, and he was just one of those kind of people that nobody even noticed him. That is who is being described here. And who has believed the report about Jesus Christ? And who has seen his strength that hadn't been seen in his physical Appearance. Matter of fact, not only is there not any beauty about him, but he's despised and rejected of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And not only did was he not anything that we wanted to look at, we actually hid our faces from him. This was physically the Lord Jesus Christ. Is that seeing the strength of, of the Lord? Is that seeing his arm revealed? Not with a physical eye, it's not. But it says about this man that surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. Not his, for he had none. The only man 
the only human being that's ever walked on this earth that had no, not even one transgression Amen. was the Lord Jesus Christ. He couldn't have been a sacrifice acceptable to God if he had had just one blemish. But there was none. He was a perfect, perfect man. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. This is description of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the scripture. I wish... You know, we, we, we read there in the 8th chapter of Acts, the, where we read earlier, and I wish that I had heard all of the sermon that Philip preached to the eunuch that day. But for some reason, the Lord didn't record it. I may be wrong. I may be wrong. But I think maybe that when... The Lord calls me home. I'll have a lot of time. Matter of fact, I'll have, I won't, I won't even have time. I'll have eternity. I might get to ask Philip what he preached that day. But I've got a pretty good idea that what he preached. Matter of fact, this is a, a scripture. Uh, it's real easy to preach from because it just almost preaches itself. But he, he, he went on. And talking about him, he was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Do you remember that when he was brought before Pilate, when he was brought before the the uh, priest and so forth, and they tried to question him, he wouldn't even open his mouth. He didn't make a defense. I think about the scripture. Uh, matter of fact, this is what Phil, uh, Peter is talking about in the book of First Peter, and chapter. Uh, two, the latter part of it, he's talking about Christ. He said, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. That is totally against human nature. Isn't it? And I tell you, uh, I think it's Brother Herman talking to me this morning. I sure will be glad when I get rid of this old sinful nature that I have. Amen. I'm going to have to live with it as long as I'm on this earth. But one of these days, as the writer of the hymn says in that hymn that we sing sometimes, sweet hour of prayer, this robe of flesh, I'll drop and rise Amen. to reach the everlasting skies. Amen. One of these days, I'll drop this old robe of flesh, but as long as I've got it, when somebody reviles me, I tell you, uh, in my human nature, I'm just like the old cat and the hair stand up on his back and I just want to get right back at him. But that's not what Jesus did. And that's not what he teaches us to do, is it? Amen. When he was reviled, he reviled not again. When he was threatened, when he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judges righteously to him who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness by whose stripes you were healed for you were a sheep going astray but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your soul. This is that man that's being described here in the 53rd chapter of Isaiah. Amen. He was taken from prison and from judgment and who shall declare his generation? I want you to, 
I'm going to read just a little bit more, but I want you to keep that phrase in mind there. Who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken, and he made his grave with the wicked. He was crucified between two criminals. He was crucified between two criminals. He made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death because he was buried in a rich man's tomb. But it says that he was cut off from the land of the living, and who shall declare his generation? And then he comes on down, and he said that it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, we see the question answered here, who shall declare his generation? That when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. Amen. Now, what does that mean exactly when it says, who shall declare his generation? I'm going to say something here that I don't, I don't know that I'd offend anybody here, but if I do, I certainly don't intend to offend anybody. But you know something that most men desire, many things that men desire, but I'm talking about specifically what we, in, in what we're looking about here, thinking about. They desire to have children. That's a natural thing, to desire children. And you also, most men desire to have a son so that his family name can be carried on. I've got one, I've got more than one grandson, but I've only got one grandson with my last name. And I've teased him ever since he was a little bitty fellow, and I said, now you've got a lot riding on you, you know, you've you, you got, you got, but we desire that, don't we? Because we want our, our, however that you would say it, we want it to continue. Well, the question was asked, who is going to declare his generation? Because he was cut off out of the land of the living. And if you cut off out of the land of the living, then you nobody's there, nobody's going to be able to carry on your name. But the, as I said, the question is answered here. He shall see his seed. Even though he's going to be cut off, his days are going to be prolonged. And he shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. Now this, when it talks here about the travail of the soul, that gets into something that you ladies know about that us men can never really know about. We can't know what it's like to give birth to a baby. We can't know what pain that you women go through in giving birth. We can't know that. I can't, I, I'm, I'll confess to you, I couldn't, I can't really sympathize with you in that or identify with you that, and no man can. But that's what's being talked about here. He shall see of the travail of his soul. And you know that when a woman has a child, and Jesus even referred to this over the New Testament, of all of the pain that you go through when you see that child, then all that pain is forgotten. Amen. Because you have seen the travail. You've seen what your pain has brought forth. 
my mother. I come from a a pretty large family. They were nine of children my mother had that lived. We lived, when I was growing up, we lived in uh, rural Arkansas. And Arkansas has often in jokes and whatever been called kind of a backward state, and it, it, in, in many ways it is and was. I was the... There were only two children born after me. I was down at the bottom, and I was the first child that my mother had that was born under elect. That, that I'm the first child born under electric lights. All the rest of them were born under uh, kerosene lamps. My mother had a Bible and had the names of all of the children and the birthdays written in the Bible. And when I got a little bit older and where I could read. And I was reading in that Bible, and I saw that she had one baby that I didn't recognize. As a matter of fact, it was not even a name. She just called him Baby, and the date that he was born, and the date he died, which was the same date. That was a mystery to me. That was something I was very curious about. One thing, he was he was born near the same, had almost the same birthday that I had. And I asked my mother about him, and she told me that he was born dead. He came out of her womb dead. When my mother was much older, not long before she died, a few years before she died, I had the privilege of spending and visiting time with my mother and her talking to me about things that happened when she was a child and, and and things like that and I really enjoyed listening to it but one day when we were there when I was talking to her she told me the story of when that little baby was born and she said that when it came out of the womb it was dead and they didn't take the baby to a funeral home or anything like that. They just was going to bury it. My mother liked to sew. She was a good seamstress. She made a lot of our clothes when we were growing up. And she told me that she had a blue piece of cloth, a real pretty piece of cloth with a blue ribbon. And she told my dad, I want you to wrap him in that cloth and put that blue ribbon on him. And that's how he was put into the grave. And I thought about this chapter later on, after I had talked to her. That had been probably 60 years when she was telling me the story since that little baby had come forth. And I could still see the sorrow in her eyes because she didn't see the travail of her soul and she wasn't satisfied. But I'm going to tell you something about my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's a satisfied Savior. And there is not one, not one of His children that is not going to see life. There's not one that's not going to be brought forth. Every one for whom the Lord Jesus died, Amen. every one of them 
will be saved. Not a one will be missing. I was... Many years ago when I was a little bit old to talk about when I was this age, but when I got up about like this, I got an invitation in the mail from Uncle Sam. And he told me that I was going to go in the Army. And so I got to spend a couple years in the United States Army. When I was in basic training, I don't know if any of you have been in the military or not, and I'm not trying to uh, say anything, but this, this, this came to my mind years later. We would have what they called a military formation in the morning when we came out of our barracks and after we'd eaten our meal, and our first meal, I think it was, and, and we'd gather out there and we'd, we'd form up. And we had in this company, we had about a, probably about 120 or 30 men and, and, and we were divided up into four platoons. They called them platoons and each platoon had four squads. And when we'd gather up in that formation, the captain and the co-captain would normally be standing out in front and each one of the sergeants in charge of the platoon, they would take count of the men that they were in charge of. The squad leaders would report to the sergeant and the sergeant then would report. And when they got all the report in and the first sergeant, normally the first sergeant would come up before the captain and he'd give a snappy salute and he'd say all present and accounted for sir I'm going to tell you something I don't know what it's going to be like when that day of the great resurrection comes but I know one thing however it happens I know that every one Jesus is going to be able to give an account and say father they are all present and accounted for every one that you gave me. Amen. Their sins have been put away. Praise God, Praise God for the Savior we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Brother Jimmy, thank you. Behold thou and the children whom thou hast given me. Amen.